This is a Radio.com original. This is the Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And we're here to talk about the coronavirus pandemic. Since the beginning of the pandemic, skeptics have been downplaying the effects of this virus, saying COVID-19 is nothing but a bad flu. New analysis on the death rate says the disease kills between 5 to 10 of every 1,000 people. Which then leads us to this. Death rates for COVID patients here in the U.S. have been down at least a little as doctors adjust how they are treating people. Have we been doing it all wrong all along? We'll get to vaccine research, the latest, with coronavirus antibodies fading pretty quickly after somebody is sick. Does that put a dent in the potential for a vaccine? Some experts are warning don't get your hopes up too high for a vaccine coming to the rescue. Movie stars, they are no different from us. Well, they got a lot more money, but they're no different otherwise, at least when it comes to... They're really good looking, (laughs) they're happy. Yeah, all those things. Uh, But when it comes to the coronavirus, I guess we're all kind of equal. They, too, need to grapple with the new reality of the COVID-19 pandemic. What is the fate of steamy love scenes? How about glitzy award shows? One industry insider shares Hollywood may use zoning strategies. You think they can put a little tiny mask on the Oscars? Oh, that would be kind of cute, actually. Yeah, like a little mask on the And keep them all six feet apart. (laughs) Long table to pick them up at. We've heard stories about people pent up with frustration, throwing a tantrum over the mask mandates, or having a lake party in the middle of the pandemic. But sometimes kids behave better than adults. A Southern California teen has been making masks for the deaf. The deadliness of the novel coronavirus has been a point of contention since this pandemic began. Skeptics would claim that this new virus is no more deadly than the flu, but doctors warn us it is at least 10 times as deadly. We are now starting to get a better understanding of COVID mortality rates. Dr. Timothy Russell, mathematical biologist at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So what more do we know now about how deadly this virus is? We do know more, but I think the key concept that people keep missing when they refer to the deadliness of this virus is not just how deadly it is if you get it, it's also how transmissible it is. This virus is clearly very deadly in totality because it's going absolutely everywhere. It's incredibly transmissive, which means that it passes from country to country incredibly easily. And if it's within the country, it spreads everywhere. <clears throat> so even if the number is very low, very, very low, a, num- uh, a virus this, dead, uh, th- this transmissible will, be, will kill hundreds of thousands of people, which is, um, which is what we're seeing now uh, because this is such a transmissive virus. Um, however, having said that, the number is significantly higher than the flu anyway, even if you do take into account that you are going to get the virus in the first place. So the fact that it's the same or no worse than the flu is completely un- unsubstantiated by any evidence. But we are learning more every day. This is a new virus, and uh, we, we, we had to learn very quickly as uh, things evolve. What do you make of the, the stories that come out that say so many more people have had this than we think? That maybe that well, you can take your testing level and you can times it by five or you can times it by ten. And then maybe you're closer to the true number then because people grabbed on that and they say, well, that'll lower the death rate down. So many people have already had this and maybe didn't even know it. No, that's exactly right. I mean, that, that is one of the key things you need to control for when doing these sorts of calculations. And that does push the number down. And when you do that, you get numbers within the range of 0.5 to 1%. It's what's known as the IFR, which stands for Infection Fatality Ratio. And that tells you, if you're going to get the infection, how likely are you to die? 
And that number is calculated by doing exactly what you just said, trying to work out how many people have had the infection in total, not just the number of reported cases, which is way too low for most countries. However, when you do that, you still get numbers, like I said, 0.5 to 1%, which, are, which is at least 10 times worse than seasonal flu, even in a bad year. So it, it, it's really, it's not even comparable to the flu. But, but the, really, the thing I cannot emphasize enough is how many more people are getting this than the flu? Think about it. I mean, how, how this has taken over the world. This is a global pandemic. Economies have shut down across the world. It, comparing it to the flu is unfortunate, <laughs> to put it mildly. The um, the other thing that's interesting about this uh, particular uh, virus uh, and the disease that it causes is that that also has changed a lot with, with time, right? And because initially we were told that this was something primarily that older people got, and certainly those are the ones who would have bad outcomes. Yet, as time has gone by, we see more and more and more cases of younger people not only getting it, but having, if not death, still some very serious disease from this. Yeah, that's right. I think these numbers are maybe a useful initial indicator, but they're quite naive in the sense that what's really going on behind the number, and it gets very complicated very quickly, but there's some percentage, some very high percentage of cases which aren't fatal, but are very severe, much more severe than a severe bout of flu. Um, and, you know, there's some percentage of people who have permanent lung damage from this disease and some percentage of people who have a stroke um, outcomes, which are very severe. And um, and we're seeing, as you say, more and more heterogeneity, which just means differences between different groups of people in, in severe outcomes. So the picture is becoming more and more complicated as to who has severe, severe outcomes and who doesn't. We thought we, we thought we understood it very well and we thought age was the simple predictor of whether you would or would not have a severe outcome but it unfortunately as many things as difficult science it's not that simple and uh yeah like you said we're seeing a lot of people with severe outcomes who you might not expect to have had them month or two ago is there uh last question here uh, doctor for you is there some common thread though that is starting to become apparent as you just touched on it used to be thought the common thread was if you were uh, old with comorbidities, then it was if you're young with comorbidities, then there was a question of which comorbidity. Is there, is there some common thread that is starting to become obvious on why some people uh, have a horrible outcome? Uh, I, I, would, I would say there are smidgens of evidence for a common thread, but there's, not, there's nowhere near enough yet. And, it, and it's, the, the problem is it's just so complicated it's, uh, it's a, it, it involves an enormous amount of your environment and probably your genetics all combined. And at the same time, as we're trying to learn about this new virus, which has only existed for, you know, since the beginning of the year, just, just before. So um, I, I, I would I'd be hesitant to give you a, a common thread at this point, but I'm sure one will emerge at some point. Yeah, I think we forget how short of time it's actually been, because it feels like 72 years, but it's <laughs> six months. Dr. Timothy Russell, mathematical biologist, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. The early thinking about COVID-19 was that it was primarily a respiratory illness, and that's why there was so much talk about ventilators at the start of the pandemic. But as doctors and scientists have learned more about the ways the virus works and how it attacks multiple different systems in the body, it became clear the treatments had to change.
Church. Dr. Sean Kniff, neurologist and emergency medicine physician at Memorial Regional Hospital and Memorial Hospital West in Broward County, Florida. So we're learning a lot about the virus. There are still a lot of questions, though. What sort of creature is this? Well, we know a lot about it, and we've all been familiar with it. It belongs to a family of viruses known as coronaviruses, and about 20 to 30 percent of the common cold are the coronavirus. So, uh, that, you know, we're all familiar with this type and the transmissibility of this virus. Um, but in this case, it just appears to be a little bit more virulent, and it's spread in a slightly different way. And uh, it's causing a whole host of problems that things like the common cold don't typically cause, and therein lies the problem. What is different now when someone comes into your emergency room than it was a few months ago? Because oh, this... Uh, I'm sure it's surreal, like yeah. you guys over there. I mean, we have... First of all, I'm a neurologist, uh, but I spend a lot of time in the ER. I'm, I'm what we call a neurohospitalist, so I take care of all the strokes, aneurysms, whatever, brain tumors that come in, and, uh, of course, all the neurological consequences of COVID, which we'll cover. But... Um, but it's a surreal uh, scene outside of our ERs with these negative pressure tents and everyone's in, you know, virtual hazmat suits taking care of those people. People are screened outside of the hospital proper. Uh, proper. And, um, and then if they meet the symptoms, what all of your audience should know is that the three main symptoms are, there's no mystery about that. It's fever, shortness of breath, and cough. And according to the CDC, 96% of all people with the COVID virus will have one of those symptoms, and about 43 or 44% will have all three. So fever, cough, and shortness of breath are what you really want to look out for. But we're also seeing things, people with GI uh, disturbances, nausea and vomiting and diarrhea, and up to about 50%. And again, neurologically speaking, we're seeing about 30%, people with headaches, changes in mental status, strokes, stuff like that. But they all get screened out in uh, these tents, um, and it's like straight out of a movie, if you ever saw Hot Zone or ET, I mean, that's exactly what's going on down here in Florida. We're screening them there, and then they go right to designated units or designated portions of the ER if they meet criteria for admission. So let's talk a little bit about the neurological aspects of this disease, because that was something that was not uh, known very much, or at least not widely discussed at the very beginning, because there are patients now, even those who have the classic symptoms at first and then recover, there are those who are now saying, I have mental confusion, I, I feel dazed all the time, I have short-term memory it's issues. It's a brain fog. Yeah, right? so, yeah. so what's yeah, going exactly. on? And no one really knows why that is, but you know, there's a couple of good conjectures out there right now. The, one thing that makes this uh, COVID-19 different than, say, the common cold and SARS and MERS that came before it is that the viral shedding from the upper respiratory tract, your nasal pharynx, seems to be a lot higher early on in the disease. And inside your uh, brain, you have open nerve endings right on the little nasal passages there called the cribriform plate. So there's really direct access to the brain at those points. And we don't really know why this virus, you know, they're trying to work out the mechanism, seems to access that pathway a little bit easier than prior coronaviruses like SARS or MERS. But that seems to be what happens. Um, and at least I think that's the leading um, you know, uh, theory on what's going on with the neurological illnesses. But we're seeing everything. I mean, the inflammatory state that we're seeing with this is similar to what we saw with SARS. Um, but, you know, it's uh, also somehow involving the neurological system. We're seeing things like there's a hypercoagulability state where, you're, where your blood becomes a little bit more cloudy. So we're seeing strokes. We're seeing, like you said, brain fog. I'm seeing a lot of encephalopathy, a lot of encephalitis. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, clogs in the vein, veins of the brain, what we call a cerebral sinus thrombosis, or I'm also seeing just run-of-the-mill strokes, arterial strokes, and I've seen a few hemorrhages, 
Um, I've seen uh, a condition, a paralytic condition called Guillain-Barre. I've seen someone whose face got paralyzed. Um, all right, so but, you know, all right but, 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 but let me ask you, though, because, yeah. because clearly, by looking at just the, the raw data, most people yeah. who, who get uh, COVID-19 either don't even know they have it or they don't have any exactly. of the things that you just mentioned. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you the yeah. same question we asked the doctor that we just talked to in London. Yeah. Are, are you starting to see some common thread that might indicate why you're seeing some of the patients who are displaying the neurological symptoms that you're seeing, why those people as opposed to the vast majority who do not? Yeah, I mean, this is really difficult to tease out, and you see it a lot in the media, is that these things happen anyway, right, despite COVID. Uh, strokes are everyone over age 65, year by year, your risk of having a stroke gets higher. So when someone comes in who's 66 years old with a stroke, and they might be one of these asymptomatic carriers of COVID, but since we're testing everybody, they have it, then we say, okay, it's a stroke related to COVID. We don't really know. Um, I personally am seeing... Uh, I would say somewhat younger. I wouldn't say younger. I just got off shift, and I, I would say that I saw, you know, my youngest was 47. And these are just, they, I mean, I've been practicing for a while, and these just strike you as oddballs. Like, they're just oddball. Like, they're, what was wrong with this person if they had such a big stroke or such a hemorrhage or something that happened? They just strike you as weird. It's a gestalt. It's where the art of medicine comes in, that something's different about this particular case compared to run-of-the-mill uh, uh, run the mill stroke. And, you know, so, but my youngest was like 47 on the past several days, and my oldest was like, you know, 65, 66, something like that. So that seemed to be there. I didn't have any 20 somethings or 30 somethings, although that happens, uh, but more rarely, of course. Yeah. Dr. Sean Kniff, neurologist, emergency medicine physician, Memorial Regional Hospital, Memorial Hospital West in Broward County, Florida. Doctor, thanks so much. A lot of promising news this week about vaccine research moving at record speeds with the hope of inoculating billions of people against COVID infections. But before you get your hopes up about a vaccine, we offer a dose of cold, hard reality. This virus may not care about your vaccine. Dr. Warner Green, Director and Senior Investigator of the Gladstone Institutes for Virology in San Francisco. So we're seeing stories about the antibodies and how they don't last very long. You get maybe a few months. Does that mean that the shots will only give us a few months? And what do we do with that? Um, Not necessarily. We're not quite sure exactly what the um, short half-life of these antibodies means in terms of a vaccine. So it turns out that this particular virus disables the interferon system. That's one way that it survives. And that same interferon system is necessary for producing these long-lived B cells that ultimately give rise to the uh, long-lasting antibodies. So it's possible that uh, what we're seeing in recovering patients may not be recapitulated in a vaccine. Maybe a vaccine is going to be better than the natural immunity that we're seeing uh, in, in, in COVID-19 patients who've recovered. That fingers crossed that that might happen. All right, but even if it's better, uh, is your best educated guess that it still wouldn't be the kind of shot you would get, you know, one time done? You would have to probably get it at least yearly like the flu shot? It all depends upon what type of of these long-lived memory B cells that we get, how long-lived they are. Uh, And, yeah, I would would predict that probably this is not going to be like a measles vaccine or a polio vaccine that lasts your entire life. 
I suspect that there, there may be some need for re-immunization, but let's hope it's not on an annual basis, as is the case with uh, influenza. Okay, you can just maybe get boosters later on as you move on through, hopefully. Yes. Remind me how it works. When I get something, I build up antibodies to it because it's fighting the bug, and then I'm protected for a while. If those do eventually go away, and then I'm re-exposed to the virus, does my body still remember how to make them quickly? And will that mean I get less of a case, or does it just forget once they're gone? Absolutely. Those are the long-lived memory cells that rally the immune response in a very rapid manner. And that's really what we want in a vaccine. We, we don't anticipate creating a state of constant uh, uh, the ability to fight the infection at the mucosal surface continuously. Vaccines don't prevent the infection, they prevent the disease. So a vaccine would rally these, uh, would allow these B cells to now come to play and and prevent the virus from spreading into the lungs and people would have uh, either no illness or a very mild illness. How many people though would have to get vaccinated and in what period of time for a successful vaccine or vaccines to really make a dent? Right. So now we're talking about herd immunity. How many people in the population need to have immunity to the virus, allowing some who don't have that immunity, who decline the vaccine or for one reason or another, um, uh, to hide within the herd? So the minimum number of people positive would be 60%. Uh, for herd immunity to have an effect. Better if it's higher than that. Uh, I'd like to see vaccines that are creating uh, good responses in 80 or 90 percent of the vaccinated uh, population, for sure. Well, we work on this, and if we do have worries, even if they're just in the back of mind about efficacy of the vaccine, antibody response, that kind of thing, does that also just emphasize the search for a good treatment, something that if you get this, you can go to the doctor, They'll give you something to take, and you can ride it out at home. Yes, therapeutics and vaccines work hand-in-hand, hand, and we will have a continuing need for highly active therapies um, even after a vaccine uh, is created and deployed. Quick question, and I need a quick answer, unfortunately, because we're running out of time. Uh, what would be, in your guess, uh, sooner, a successful vaccine or an arsenal of successful therapeutics? I think there are many poised uh, therapeutics. I think we're going to hear a lot about the use of interferons as a, as a new therapeutic in this disease. Uh, but uh, the uh, vaccine programs are running at light speed. Dr. Warner Green, Director and Senior Investigator, Gladstone Institutes of Virology in San Francisco. When the coronavirus pandemic hit, production on TV shows and movies stopped abruptly. It became pretty clear that essentially every part of filming would have to change in significant ways while COVID-19 remains a threat. So, what is happening right now in the movie and TV production industry? What will the future of a set look like? Lauren Wolkstein's a filmmaker, television director, assistant professor in the Temple University of Theater, Film, Media, Arts. She spoke with KYW's Charlotte Reese about how the virus has transformed production. You know, coronavirus has made life stand still for just about everyone, including movies and TV shows. And I think that's a piece yeah. that many people don't really get to hear about. 
you know, and the, the shutdowns affected everything from theaters to production. How did life yeah. change for you back in March when all of this kind of went down? Yeah, you're exactly right. Everything is at a standstill right now for a lot of television shows that had to shut down in mid-March. I was on a television show that shoots in New Orleans. My whole family relocated to New Orleans for the series, which would have been four months shooting in New Orleans. It's a 10-episode series for the season and we were able I was able to direct the first episode and then we were three days into the second episode and we had to shut down March 13th there were over 250 crew members working on the show with a big ensemble cast and I it was around I want to say lunchtime that we had to shut down the whole production and say that we were going on a two-week hiatus which I actually believed it was going to be a two-week hiatus naive as I was. I I didn't realize the severity of the COVID-19 virus until I got home that night and checked the news and saw all the reporting and then saw how much of a bubble I was in with production and how severe this virus was, especially in New Orleans, which was an epicenter at the time. Can you talk about what what sets were kind of like before coronavirus? And you mentioned already, but how do you think things will change until, you know, there's a vaccine and we don't have to worry about guidelines so much? Yeah, well, sets pre-corona are very, I mean, it's very collaborative filmmaking. You are inside a space all together, working all together. You have several different departments that are gathering in one space that are constantly in contact with each other to make sure that everything is running smoothly, that production is in coordination with every single department, working in conjunction with each other. And it's very, you know, very enclosed spaces where tons of people are together at like 12 hours in a day, at least you have several hundred people all together in one space. So it's, it's a huge undertaking. And what Paul was saying, and what a lot of people that have gone back into production are saying is that, you know, these zones have been created where only the necessary people that have to get the scene shot or have to get you know, everything done are in spaces at one time, at a time together, rather than having everyone at the same space, in the same space together, which is how it used to be. Now people are creating these zone environments where only certain cast members that have to be in a scene are in zone A with hair and makeup and with the director, whereas zone B is everyone that can be in their trailer or can be offset somewhere or off screen or off, you know, people that are rigging or pre-rigging or different members of the crew that don't have to be in that space at that time when we're shooting are asked to, you know, be outside of that space to to be safer. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that zone type of shooting where if you don't have to be in that space at that time, then you will not be allowed in that space. And that's different than anything we've done before in terms of productions that I've been on. You know, what you have everyone together at one time. Uh, you're not asking people to leave that space um, unless it's a closed set, unless it's a set that is very, you know, you're dealing with like very intimate scenes 
where you can have several people in the same space at the same time, I think a lot more productions will look like closed sets, even if they're not intimate scenes that they're that are being shot. So I think that's the real difference is how you see people on a set congregating around each other. And I, I also think the way people are together in communal spaces, such as like catering and craft service, that that's going to change uh, a lot in terms of how people gather, you know, when, when they're not shooting in order to get food or take breaks. I think a lot of that's going to look different. There have been different production protocols that have been put in place or, or sent out guidelines through the unions, specific documents that have been laid out through like the, the DGA has a task force, the Directors Guild of America has a task force, and several other unions have task forces that have come together to try to lay out these production protocols that different sets will have to follow in order to make sure everyone's safe. And that's a living document that's going to constantly be updated as, as the months you know continue. There's also festivals and award shows and different things. And um, yeah. I saw that, you know, your work has premiered at the Sundance Film Festival a few times. And I know that's a far way out. But can you just talk about festivals a little bit and what they kind of mean to the film industry? Yeah, festivals are really important for exposure of films, for, for audiences to see films for the first time for kind of that stamp of approval for films to actually get seen and distributed. Um, festivals are oftentimes the first place where, first venue where audiences get to see a film. I think a lot of people are looking at alternate ways to have festivals right now um, in this pre-vaccine environment that we're in, in terms of some sort of hybrid physical festival as well as uh, a virtual festival and, and trying to find that balance. Um, I know a lot of festivals, you know, like Sundance or like the New York Film Festival that's coming up are looking for the best way to showcase these films at this time. And the award shows, too. I know, you know, the big ones have already been postponing, but how does that affect uh, the industry as well? Well, I know the Oscars have the Academy has decided to move the Oscars to, I believe, April not entirely sure, but the, the Oscars used to be a lot earlier than that, and now they're um, postponing them. And it makes a lot of sense. I feel like a lot of films that would have been nominated for the Oscars this year have been pushed. You know, a lot of films have not been released that would have been released. So there's a, a much smaller amount of movies that will be nominated this year. So I, it's interesting. I, I don't know how things will play out, but I also think it's good that award shows and festivals are either pushing or postponing because I also feel like if a film's been made already, then I feel like you can wait for the proper time to release it. You know, no one's going to see movies right now besides streaming. A teen from Southern California is doing her part to help the deaf and hard of hearing. 17-year-old Isabella Appel has created a company called Talking Masks, making face coverings that feature a clear plastic window to help deaf people read lips. Appel doesn't have any hearing issues herself, but says she has always been interested in learning sign language and is a member of several social media groups for deaf people. She makes them herself and only asks for a small donation that goes to the Hearing Aid Project and, of course, the shipping fee. 
Thank you to Isabella. And thank you for listening. Stay well. Listen to us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Movie stars are, are we are like movie stars. Going back to that earlier story. And yeah. We are. I mean, you know, well, they cough in a better way. They project more. Yes. That's, they, why, that's why they need masks. They're classically trained. Yeah. Yeah.